Live from Beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by libertarian and conservative Bruno Berend, Republican attorney Judith Sherwin, Arab-American businessman Rush Darwish, and later in the second hour, the national chairman of the Libertarian Party will be joined by Angela McCardle. And again, we'll be talking about libertarian politics. Our program tonight coming to you from AM560, The Answer in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. Phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. 1-800-723-8289. We'll also be talking about uh, the big story out of Washington, D.C., the ouster of the Speaker uh, Kevin McCarthy and the battle to become the new Speaker of the House of Representatives. And again, we'll discuss that to coming up uh, in the next half hour. We're going to begin this evening with uh, the biggest story in the world at the moment. Uh, it was not going to be our lead story tonight, but it's hard to avoid. And that is the devastation in Israel and Gaza, uh, the battling going back and forth between Hamas uh, and their attacks on Israel and Israel's response. And again, we're going to try to present a, a, a fair and balanced discussion of those issues. And, 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 and most importantly, is there any way that we could get rid of this bloodshed that consistently exists uh, in the Middle East? Judith Sherwin joins us. Uh, she joins us. And also with us this evening is Rush Darwish. He is an American, uh, Arab-American businessman. And again, I want to begin with you, Rush. Uh, and you join us by phone this evening. Um, when the world sees these stories and sees the devastation of what happened in, in Israel, in your view, does that help or hinder the Palestinian cause? Uh, Whenever you have a horrific situation where we see people get hurt, that's never good. But we also have to put everything in the context as to why. Why did this happen? Uh, you have to look at the history, and you don't even have to look too far. We're, we're not trying to do a, a history lesson to take everyone back. 72 years of occupation, but we could just take you back to this summer where over 300 Palestinians were killed in the hands of the occupying forces. Uh, children, Bruce, uh, get their legs uh, shot, you know, cut off. Uh, two years ago, hundreds of people, Palestinians evicted from their homes from Jerusalem. It has been adding up. There just comes a point when you oppress so many people, thousands of them, millions of them. What are we supposed to do? What are Palestinians supposed to do? And here's the thing, of course, these stories get either reported or very little report whatsoever. So most people are not uh, listening to this, they're not hearing the backstory, and this is what brought us okay. to now. Okay, right, now to, let me just to follow up to that, and then I want to hear from Julius Sherwin. Because the world has not seen or did not see, or the majority of the world did not see the videos that you say exist of this other attack many, many months ago, uh, where 300 Palestinians were killed. My question to you is, the picture, a picture is worth a thousand words. And the picture that is indelibly etched in the minds of many people around the world this evening is an imagining, being in your, in, in your apartment or going out for a walk and having a group of people come in and just start shooting at you. I mean, it takes every attack that we've ever had in the United States, with the exception of 9-11, and it, it pales in comparison. So my question to you is, insofar as sympathy goes, 
How can there be any sympathy for Hamas when they did what they did? Yeah, we can't equivocate sympathy, Bruce, because, again, the stories that you are saying are, are terrible. Nobody's disputing that. But the stories that you gave are stories that have been happening for years. Even this summer, we're settlers. Uh, we're going into West Bank towns, burning homes, throwing rocks and stones at people, uh, beating people literally to death. And these are stories, again, we are not hearing. Uh, but of course, now uh, what happened yesterday, which again, we understand that this is devastating. So it comes to a point where we have to bring both sides to the table, as painful as it is, and start looking at options of how do we get to peace? How do okay. we get this resolved? I want to I move on just a second. I, I want to bring Judith Sherwin into our discussion. Uh, she's she's very involved in the Jewish community. Obviously, this is very close to her heart. She has many relatives residing in Israel. Uh, Judith, answer the question that I asked. Uh, the images of this, it would seem to me in the world population, there may be an overwhelming response uh, in this particular case. But speak to Russia's perspective, and that is that the devastating things that have happened to the Palestinians at the hands of the Israelis, that hasn't received the type of international publicity or recognition or coverage that uh, this tragedy has received. Well, first of all, um, you know, this, this whole uh, moral equivalence thing, what we're starting to get into here, is, is just abhorrent. It's morally repugnant, number one. Uh, first of all, this, this 300 Palestinians who were killed last summer, I don't know, Bruce, I seem to have missed that story. I think the rest of the world missed it too. Uh, the the uh, actual uh, story about why all of this happened was uh, there was an insult to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's even what they call this this operation. Listen, the, the Wall Street Journal uh, this afternoon, just before we went on the air, aired a story indicating that this attack was planned since August by Hamas and Hezbollah with the help of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard. It's all over the Wall Street Journal. It's all over everything else. Uh, this, this is a planned attack. You know, when people tell you, as Hamas has over the years, Holocaust never happened, but you know what? It might have been a good idea if it did. We really ought to finish the job. If People tell you they want to kill you. You better listen. Unfortunately, Israel's intelligence and, and perhaps the United States intelligence, but that's another story, seem to have missed what was going to happen. But this is and, and by the way, that is a shocking part of this story because well, Mossad has been known for, for, for decades as being the best intelligence agency in the world, and they missed this. Well, you know, they missed the Yom Kippur War, too. So, I mean, it's, it's, uh, these things can happen. The, the, problem, the problem is that this is, I mean, you had, this isn't rockets going overhead hitting the Iron Dome, which is what my friend told me she thought it was when she first heard sirens go off in Jerusalem yesterday morning. This is people walking into someone's house, putting the family in a room and murdering them. Okay, the state of Israel was created in order not to have to live with stuff like that anymore. Yeah. The pogroms in Europe have now been replaced by Hamas doing the same yep. thing 
in the in in Israel. I this wanna, has to stop, and there will be punishment. For I want to pause. I want to I want to get a brief reaction. Just one second, Rush. We'll get back to you. I want to get brief reaction from our other guest this evening, uh, Bruno Barron. Well, I, I need a short response right now. What I'd like to do is I'd like to pose a, a little bit longer question to to both sides. I mean, I'll I'll say in advance that I'm generally on Israel's side on this, but I'd like to ask both guests a question. Okay, and we'll do that when we come back. 1-800-723-8289. If you have a comment or a question for our guests, do give us a call. We're just doing the first half hour on this discussion this evening. So if you want to jump on, do it right now. went back and I'm going to go to Rush Darwish. You had a response to what Judith was saying and then uh, we've got a question from Bruno Berend. Go ahead, Rush. Well, unfortunately, it's a game of perceptions and uh, a lot of folks who may be pro-Israel will talk about what happened yesterday and talk about Hamas, uh, but no one is talking about the history and, and Judith mentions what's happening to the Israelis, but does not mention the, the years of occupation. Where she doesn't mention uh, how kids are being targeted daily. Uh, they're literally, literally, the, the occupying forces are, are shooting, aiming at kids and shooting at their legs. Look it up so everyone can see it. Uh, we don't talk about uh, people being expelled from their homes. This has nothing to do with Hamas. These are areas of the West Bank that's controlled uh, under the, okay. what they call the, the Palestinian... Uh, I, you know, I want to follow up quickly with a question, and then I do want to get to Bruno. Judith, are, are you saying to the audience that... Uh, the Israelis are a, are angels in this case. That I mean, some of the things that that Rush has said are true, because of the occupation and the frustration, uh, and maybe the action or the overaction. Is some of that is some of that true? And uh, or are you basically saying that Israel has done no wrong here? What I'm saying is is very similar to what you see when people run around and yell about the police in the United States. The police are terrible. The police are beating people up. The police are shooting people. The police don't shoot people unless there's something that happens, all right? In Israel, people don't, people do not get thrown out of their houses unless one of their children becomes a suicide bomber or takes a rifle. Excuse me, I'm talking. I am talking. Let's let Judith respond now. And takes a rifle. One second. Takes a rifle and shoots up a cafe in Tel Aviv. Then they go to that person's house and they destroy that house because the Palestinian Authority pays those people to do that. Hang on, Rush. I, I, I'm going to bring in Bruno because I promised that. Uh, he's got a question to ask so of both this, of you. Look, I, I will admit, given my not following this, I, I certainly don't follow this situation as closely as I follow American politics. And But I follow it closely enough because I'm a good citizen of the United States and the world. And I, I, have, I, I will admit I have my biases. I lean in favor of Israel just because that's what I know at this point. So the, my question for both sides would be, what if there was a you know, an honest to goodness, like real, like, and I think we need to do this across the world on a on great number of issues, but I would like to see a real, like Nuremberg style trial on this. And, and, and when I say Nuremberg style trial, I mean that there's a judge 
and there's uh, there's prosecutors or there's a case to be made from both sides and that the Palestinians the Palestinian authority gets to put on its best case and it and and it can have its evidence and it can have its proofs and it can have all the different things that they say happen that the Israeli going to happen. Well, it, but okay, so if it <laughs> doesn't idea. if it never yeah. happens, it's if it happen. never happens then like like here in America for example, there is a natural predisposition to be pro-Israeli. It's a democracy against many, many other countries in the Middle East that are not democracies. Um, it, it is. Um, it's a. It, they they came back to get a nation state. But I don't know. I don't. I haven't read every single book on Israel's founding, and I haven't read. I, I've read articles, and I and I, I. This is what I would say to both sides. I don't think that the, uh, the the Israelis have been angels in this, but I lean more in favor because I would. I would tend to think that they that they haven't aren't guilty of the atrocities that Russia okay. is saying, but I'd like that I'd like to know for a fact if what what people are saying are true, and both sides get to put on their best case. Okay, uh, Rush, your response to that, and then you were you you were saying something uh, during Judith's response. We would be ready to do that in a heartbeat. Amnesty International has called out Israel too many times accounts of breaking international law. They have broken international law more than most likely any country. In the world, the problem is when you have a superpower that backs you, like the United States of America, international law does not apply to them. So the idea, the idea, and I like this idea. Let's come out. Let's bring out the truth from both sides. But Israel would never dare because they know that they are the leaders with breaking international law. You cannot build walls uh, to separate people. Uh, you you cannot build a fence, uh, a 7.2 mile wall, and enclose people in Gaza and think that that's okay. And as, as Judith just said right now, she's trying to say that anything that goes wrong, whether here in the United States, uh, George Floyd, who was choked out by an officer, and many Palestinians that were shot for no reason, she's saying, well, you know what? For them to do that, that means they have to do something wrong. That is racist at its core. That is discrimination right. at its okay. core. Yep. I'm a racist. You got it. Okay. That's perfect. All right. Hang on just a second. No, I mean, this hang is, on just, this hang, is hang, atrocious, hang, hang on just a second. It's, it's, hang on just a second. We're going to go to a call. Scott in Austin, Texas, listening to us on KLBJ. <laughs> go ahead, Scott, with your question. Well, it's not really a question. I, I think that there are, there are, when it comes to Israel, there's selective, convenient amnesia. From the start of Israel, when the United Nations approved it, within 48 hours, there were three surrounding nations that invaded it, promising that they would drive the Jews into the sea, and they would then, as a consequence, turn over the whole country to the Palestinians. Or the following uh, Yasser Arafat's uh, political decision to not go with a two-nation state that had been agreed to. Um, or the Israelis... Uh, uh, leaving Gaza to the Palestinians as an act of good faith. All of these are forgotten because of political shenanigans that these people are talking about now. Right. And no country is completely innocent. But uh, this is clearly a situation in which an atrocity has occurred. Okay, let's get uh, Rush to respond and then Judith. Rush, your response to that well, question. You know, unfortunately, I, I have to be truthful. I was cut off during the the audio portion, and I just got uh, the, the last portion to it. But I'm, I'm going to have to say this, is that at the end of the day, we can we can go back and forth uh, about this conflict and, and what is happening. But ultimately, this comes down to a humanitarian crisis. And ultimately, the Palestinians are living there. Their families live there. And that comes to a point where human rights have to be put in the front. And whether it's 
Israel, that is the government, or Palestinians, they're the ones running the government. You cannot treat people unfairly. You cannot put up an apartheid wall in one area and then have another area to supposedly have democracy in Israel. This would is this, not even the core would, of the Question, I want to ask this question. Would this issue be resolved or on the way to resolution if the Palestinians had their own state? Judith. No, absolutely not. First of all, they don't want their own state. What they want is from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free. Okay, that's what they want, which is another word for Judenrein. They want to get rid of the Jews. It is exactly what the caller said. The, the United Nations voted for a two-state solution 70-some years ago. Okay, the Arabs not Palestinians, because nobody called them Palestinians. The Palestinians in those days were the Israelis. The, the Arabs did not accept it. Instead, they came in and they attacked Israel, and they lost. And it's been the same issue ever since. They have never changed their mind. The, the, the Arab communities, the Arab countries, set up these people, the Palestinians, around in these camps they created this situation they created all this 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 vicious unhappiness okay throughout the generations and it has resulted in this there's no right and wrong about what happened yesterday people came in to people's homes dragged them into the streets and killed them 700 people as of today probably more by tomorrow all right these people... 1,100 uh, estimate on, on both sides. It, uh, I haven't heard anything that about was, the other side. Okay, well, actually, I have. I've also... Well, that's, excuse that's, me. That's, it's, the current, that's the current number. By the, by right. the way, so, uh, let me just... Hang, hang just one no, second. Let me finish well, first. Very finished because we're, we're running out of time. Okay. Take another 10 seconds. Take another 10 seconds. There's no right or wrong. This is brutality. This is morally repugnant. This is savage brutality. It's like the Barbary pirates, all right, taking people out in the streets and killing them. Okay. This is not right. something well, that is to going to be accepted by Israel. And as I said before, yeah. right. there will be a price we're to, go to pay. We're going to go to Rush. Just and so not necessarily so he only his, in Gaza. Just so he has his time. Rush, you've got about a minute. Go ahead. The difference between me and Judith here tonight is I recognize that what happened yesterday is wrong. Judith will not recognize that everything she just said about what happened yesterday has been happening to the Palestinians for decades. It happens daily. The only difference is the media does not report it here in the United States. They report it other places. So no, this is the problem here. All lives matter and all people, their lives matter more than ever. And Judith continues to say that is really lives matter, and the Palestinians, well, we're just a bunch of terrorists, and that's why we have the problem we have right now, and we're going to fight that to the end, because this is a great injustice. What are you, do what are you doing to try to erase the image of, of Arabs of being terrorists, or Palestinians of being terrorists? If, if they do what they did yesterday, how do you change that image? How do you make them the good guys in this story? Well, here's the deal. It's about recognizing that the people in Palestine are just like the people here in the United States. They're families that want to they want to get up in the morning. They want to go to work. They want to support their families. 
But how could you do that when you have checkpoints every mile and a half in, in the West Bank? How could you do that in Gaza? But do they, do, they acknowledge, do they acknowledge that the state of Israel should exist? No, they don't. You know, well, I'm going to get like 10 seconds, Rush. Do they or not? That question is, should people that oppress, does the, does the one who are oppressed, do they recognize the oppressor? What is the equivalent of somebody getting oh, punched in the face 40 sense. times? That other they're person not, okay. they're not oppressed. Rush, I'm, not oppressed. Rush, on that point, Rush, I'm sorry. You're only available for half an hour. The first half hour is over. I hope everyone has at least had some semblance of being treated fairly in this uh, half hour. I'm Bruce Dumont. We will continue with our discussion of what's happening in Washington and the future of the Republican Party. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. Month back, and we are now joined by Nick Calm. Nick Calm is the head of Reputation Partners. He he is a Republican, and he's going to talk about some of the political activities in Washington D.C. Uh, in the last week. But again, uh, Bruno Berenda during the break uh, was making a very important point about media coverage and how accurate media coverage is on this, and whether there's any truth to what uh, what uh, Rush had to say is that the world media is not covering at least the Palestinian side of the issue. Do you agree or disagree with that? Well, I haven't I haven't looked at the world media at this point in time, and I, I, I haven't looked at, like, for example, the topic that came up in the conversation was the BBC. I, I've, I've grown to distrust the BBC the same way I've grown to distrust the New York Times. And it's not, it's not that these big-name news outlets don't report facts. It's that they only report the facts that go along with the establishment narrative, whatever the establishment narrative is. Now, here in America, the establishment narrative is still more pro-Israeli than it is pro-Palestinian, although if you look at what's going on in the universities and on the campuses, you're starting to get a very, very big push to that where they're literally openly anti-Israeli and pro-Palestinian. So you, what, what, what I'm lamenting is the fact that we can't really get any real honest-to-goodness facts anymore. We, we all know that what's going on in uh, Israel right now and what, the, what Hamas did, uh, probably with the help of Hezbollah, um, is— an, an, And Iran. And Iran. And Iran. Iran. is an atrocity. Um, and whether or not Rush, who's, who's not here to defend himself anymore, whether or not his point is that you have to look at all of this into the context of everything that's happened to the Palestinians over the decades— that's one of the reasons I said I'd love to have a Nuremberg-style trial on some yeah. of this stuff because we but that, but we want to see the that's facts. Sort of, that's, that's, not so, that's, sort a, that's, that's sort of a uh, you know a justification. Uh, Nick, uh, this is not the area you were going to talk about, but I know you're a very no, smart guy, so weigh in. I have to say something. First of all, I mildly disagree with my friend Bruno here, um, and definitely, I mean, Rush was an apologist, obviously for Hamas. There's plenty of people in this country uh, who disapprove of Israel in the media, New York Times, many broadcasters as well. If there was a shred of proof of any of the things that he was just talking about, atrocities committed by the Israeli Defense Force, we would have seen it. This is absolutely ridiculous. It was abhorrent to hear that. And again, I think I appreciate, Bruce, you're trying to do a sort of a both sides thing, but it's not even close. It's not even close. And the question that I would have asked 
Rush, if he were still on with me, is how do you think this is now going to work out for the Palestinian people? Do you think this is going to work out well? What is Gaza going to look like in a well, week or two? What well, that, that was so, that was so, like that was that was that was behind my that's behind my initial question is when something like this happens, and it happens because Hamas did what it did in Israel. How do they think in the court of world opinion that that's going to help their side? Opinion, they're going to be vaporized, Bruce. Yes. They're going to be vaporized. That's right. The Israeli well, but, but Nick, Nick, as when they're... Let me finish, Judith. Let me finish, Judith. Let me finish, Judith. Okay, okay. The, he, the Israeli Defense Force now is going to exact an unbelievably terrible price on Hamas and likely on Iran and perhaps Hezbollah as well. And what this means for the average Palestinian Joe or Jane it's going to be devastating for them. So the idea that he sit there and hear the person justifying what's going on because of walls being built, are you kidding me? And we've not even seen a tiny fraction of the atrocities that the uh, Hamas has committed in the last couple of days. I, I don't think my stomach could take it. It is now gonna end so poorly for these folks because of what they've done. Maybe sure, Bruno, a Nuremberg trial would be, get a sort of a both sides thing, but there's no moral equivalence here. Well, I, I, and I'm not arguing that I'm not arguing that there is a moral equivalence. I, I just I just think that you know we're so as the American people. I mean, look, Nick, the all of us on this show are exceedingly well informed on this specific issue. I'm I'm less informed than I, than uh, you or Judith. I you know I, I concede that. But we're very well informed relative to the most of the people in the world or in the country. And I think it, there's something that would benefit the world to, to know about this. And I, but I'm not, I'm not making a moral equivalence argument. As I said many times, I, I naturally lean in favor of Israel in this situation. And I don't agree with any, I don't disagree with anything you or Judith or, or Bruce has said. Judith, you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, it's, so this this idea of a Nuremberg trial. I mean, first of all, the Nuremberg trials were meant to punish a heinous group of of morally repugnant, okay. vicious, but that's criminals. Not gonna, but okay? that's not going to happen. It's an and idea. It shouldn't, Speak it, to well, something that's real. Well, something that's real is that what's going to happen now is is I I agree with Nick. There's going to be an absolutely horrific price paid in Gaza for what they did and there should be has the and united has the united states been a, a a an objective observer participant in trying to resolve the issue between the arabs and the jews no I mean, no, no absolutely okay. not judith first judith first go ahead judith. absolutely not they've got this ridiculous idea that iran is going to be their counterbalance in the middle east and is going to make everything in the region work out well in the Middle East. This is this fantasy land has been going on since Obama with the idea of the Iran nuclear deal. Just what we need is for Iran to have a nuclear weapon. Okay. What do you think they're going to do with it? Nick, go ahead to you. The Biden, the Biden administration was pretending until a few hours ago that Iran had nothing to do with these attacks, right. even though Hamas has been saying that they have. They had to backtrack that. They gave Iran $6 billion to get a handful of stupid people who allowed themselves to be kidnapped back with hardly any conditions at all. Right. Iran is basically going to take that $6 billion and use it to replace money they were spending on other things. They've been planning this. As we're going to go. Folks, I want to bring Dave from Washington State into the conversation because he wants to pick up on some of the points that you just made, Nick. Go ahead. 
Dave, go ahead. Hey there. Yeah, I, I was wanting to hit that same point because I've, I've heard some people talking about this $6 billion, and Blinken came out trying to vigorously say that anyone saying that that, that money could have been used or, or played a part in this, what we just saw happen is either misinformed or they're misinforming people. And I would like to explain to people that the whole fungibility of money that, that some people have talked about, which is correct, um, because a little analogy I would like to give is if you're in college and your roommates all say, hey, you know, you, we need you to pay all your bills for rent and your utilities and everything else. So you're like, okay, I'm strapped. I don't have any extra money. So my other friends that want me to go out, you know, dancing and have some drinks that night, I have to say I can't do it because I don't have any money. Then if your parents call you, you know, two hours later and say, hey, we're going to send you a $100 debit card that you can only use for food. You know, you can use it at the grocery store and for your utilities. And then after that call, you call your other friends back and say, you know what? I can go out to the bar with you now. And they're like, I thought you were broke. Well, I actually have freed up some money now. I can use some money I was going to use for food and my utility bill, and I can use that to go out to the bar with you guys because I know I got 100 bucks coming from my parents via this debit card that I'll be able to use for my other bills. That's the exact same thing going on Absolutely. with the $6 billion. Even if they haven't taken a dime of it yet, it's available for them so they can already use other money that they would have used for other things to push into more of these types of Bruno activities. Bear, uh, Dave, Bruno, Bruno, yeah. Bruno's got a comment. Well, Bruno, so, go ahead. Dave, that's a very good point, and I, I, I agree with it. And every time somebody uses that, that wasn't earmarked for this or that there's a Chinese wall, the, your fungibility of money point is, is an excellent one and should always be brought up. Um, clearly, we have a situation where the Biden administration is trying to sound like they're pro-Israel and, and pro-democracy and they're trying to be, get peace in the Middle East. Um, they're, the, the Obama slash Biden administration and all the holdovers from Obama who are pulling B- Biden's strings, we all know that they're very, very pro-Iran. And there's, there's also a big Iranian um, uh, scandal breaking right now in terms of spy and everything. Right. But I, I do have one question for Judith and, and Nick, and I'd like them to explain the the it, what because I know something about it, but I don't know every detail, and I'm sure you guys know more. But Trump's Abraham Accords, which always seemed to me like a bit of a breakthrough and a positive thing, and I'm and I'm probably the least Trumpy personal person in this in this group. Um, but can someone explain to me like the impact of that and whether or not this rapprochement with Saudi Arabia and other Arab states might have something to do with timing this invasion as well? Absolutely. Well, first of all. I firmly believe that the timing of this invasion was to scuttle the agreement and and take Netanyahu away from his negotiations with the Saudis. The Saudis, first of all, had Trump been reelected, the Saudis probably would have come into the Abraham Accords. It's a tremendous breakthrough in the Middle East to get people, number one, focused on their future in respect to economy and what they can do together as opposed to you can't make peace in the Middle East unless you go through the Palestinians. The Palestinians don't want peace in the Middle East. Hamas doesn't want peace in the Middle East. Their idea of peace in the Middle East is Nor does no Russia Jews. or China. Well, yeah, but, but the, the main problem here right. for the, the Jewish state is Hamas. All right? they don't, the their peace involves no Jews. All Nick, right? Nick's got a comment. Nick, go ahead. No, I just, I agree completely with what Judy just said. Judith just said it's it's absolutely key. It's it's time for that. It's time specifically because they don't want to see peace happen, and this is a way to have war happen instead. Right. And of course, when 
you start seeing Palestinians now destroyed by the IDF, which unfortunately is going to happen based on the actions of the last 48 hours. It makes it harder for other Arab countries to join on to these accords. That's right. Well, and the other thing that's going to happen, I, I guarantee you by the end of the week, the the friends in the of Israel and the administration are going to go back to the first tweet that they put out right after the attack started, which was, well, let's let's be measured in our response. Yeah. Violence never gets you anything. We're That's about the to your three days from Well, it leads us into the discussion of how does Washington respond? There is the presidential response. And then generally there's a there's a congressional response. What the hell is the congressional response when we don't even know who's calling the shots in the House? I'm Bruce Dumont. We will continue with that topic. Don't go away. back on Beyond the Beltway in our next hour after the break at the top of the hour. We're going to be joined by Angela McArdle. She is the national chair of the Libertarian Party of the United States. She will join us from Austin, Texas. But back to uh, this discussion, and I'm switching gears now, and I'm going to ask each of our guests, which was the, the principal reason why they were invited to be on this <laughs> evening, uh, which was uh, your reaction to what happened last week. Um, who was the hero and who was the goat? Uh, were you for McCarthy and against Gates or vice versa? But us start with you, Nick. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say McCarthy was a hero, but history is going to be very kind to him, given what he did and how he stepped out um, of the scene and now is perhaps going to even resign from Congress. The thing I it is this so important. If you're a Republican, you need to be. We've got such an advantage over Democrats on so many key issues, the economy, terrorism, double digits, 20 points, but you have to show you can govern. How does this fiasco make it appear that Republicans are capable of governing? I can't come up with a, a plausible defense of that to show that. And again, look, people have a short attention span. And it's, if this is going to be over in a week, then maybe it's not going to be a problem, but it's not going to be over in a week. I want to go to whoever it is that comes I want, to go, I want to go to Judith because she she sees things. Let me finish my point. I'll finish the point. Bruce, let me finish my point, please. I'm making one point. <laughs> oh, you do that to make somebody your, else. Make too. your point. Go ahead. Let me make the point. Let me make the point. So regardless of whether it's Jordan or Scalise, if they find themselves in the same situation that McCarthy did, and this is in the headlines again, repeatedly for weeks and months, the media gleefully reporting Republican dysfunction. Oh, yeah. The Democrats all sitting back, beautifully unified. They pick Hakeem Jeffries like this with no problem at all. All of that advantage that Republicans have going into the next election is going to be erased. Okay. I'm done. All right. Judith, you like Matt Gates. You like what he did. Well, okay. Saying I like Matt Gates is probably an overstatement. However, I think he was he was correct in what he did. I think that McCarthy has been a weak speaker in terms of what the GOP, in terms of what their advantages are, in terms of what's going on in the country. I think he was weak. I don't think he was particularly happy being the speaker either. Um, he kind of gave up pretty much with a whimper. 
I, I, Does this make the party look weaker? Speak to speak no, to Nick's point. No, I don't see. I don't think it makes it feel uh, look weaker. I think it makes it look, quite frankly, more American. You've got different. Look at the people you've got on tonight. Nick and and Bruno and I are generally on the Republican side of things. Although I think Bruno is more of a libertarian, but but more conservative. All right. But no. we all have different points of view. We can come together on certain things. We're not together on other things. That's unfortunately what the Republican Party is, and that's what you saw play out. But there were but the certain three, things. The three of Judith, the three of you would agree that you don't want to replace yourself on this program with three Democrats or who who agree with each other and give them all the airtime. No. You, would, you wouldn't want to do that. But, no, Bruno's I don't want to. Come. But, but get, let me finish. No, 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 Can no, I finish no. my you point? You finish your point. Everybody wants right. to finish their point this evening. <laughs> yes. I'm just trying to move the show along. I, I know. But look, I think McCarthy was too weak. I really do. He Got it. Was you said weak. that. Okay, and, and he needed to be stronger about a number of things. And, and the complete capitulation of last weekend including the fact that Biden said he had some kind of side deal with him about Ukraine funding. This was a major issue. He never really denied it. I think that that this is a problem. The way we've been okay. governing has been a problem, okay. and we've got to stop you it. You have finished that point. Bruno. Well, so I, I was hoping that McCarthy would survive the vote through all of this because it seemed to be the best, the, the, the least um, aggressive, change, chaotic option, uh, and I was very critical of Gates when when all of this happened. And since every since all of that, I, I haven't really changed my view on that. I don't think McCarthy was perfect. I think he had done a, a pretty good set of things. But we all have to step back from the frightening, you know, and frightened uh, Democratic narrative on all this stuff. We were told when McCarthy was going through his fifteen votes or whatever that oh, the Republican Party, they're all crazy. Look how nutty they are. And, you know, personally, one of the things I'd say to anybody is, well, I'd rather have a party that was fighting things out in the open light of day right. instead of having an apparatchik-oriented commissariat of a corrupt Democratic Party, which is essentially moving toward like a Marxist politburo where no one can do anything and no one can step out of line until they're told to. I mean, Gavin Newsom wants to run for president. Everybody knows that, but he's being told, you sit down and shut up until we tell you it's your turn and we'll see what happens. And everybody is dutifully doing that. Why would anybody want that party to run things? So here's what's going to happen. I admire, I admire the discipline, though. Well, yeah, we admire, not, I, we admire the discipline, but, what, but the problem is, like, look, look what's going to happen here. And I was very, very critical of Gates, and, and Gates is an interesting weirdo, and I think he's probably a bit of a bomb thrower, and I wouldn't want to have lunch with him necessarily. A bit. But he, but he <laughs> held a guy's feet to the fire, in, and he told him he was going to hold his feet to the fire. So it's not like right. McCarthy didn't see what was coming. And here's, what, here's what's probably— And he agreed to it. Yeah, right. and he agreed, he agreed to it. And that, he, and so, that's why he wanted the speaker. So and be, then he, he went to back it. And it. so because Gates did this and because McCarthy agreed to it, the party turned out to—the the GOP turned out to be stronger— it, it turned out to do better than anybody expected. McCarthy pulled a few rabbits out of the hat that no one gave him credit for pulling out. Maybe he pulled the rabbit's ears too, too fast with this one, and maybe we could have withstood a, a two-day shutdown or whatever, and who knows. But the fact is that here's what's probably going to happen. In a few days, Jim Jordan's going to end up being the speaker, and I really want Jordan to be the speaker and not Scalise because I don't trust Scalise as far as I'd throw him. 
Um, Jordan maybe a little bit more so, but here you have an opportunity for a new speaker. Everybody knows what the rules are. Uh, maybe somebody should go to Gates and tell him, okay, you've, you got away with it this time. The next time you're going to end up floating face down in a river. <laughs> and, and then just move on. And, the, and, and, and stop being so afraid of the democratic narrative. Right, right. Absolutely. Judith. I mean, we've got to get to a point. You need a speaker. I, and I, you know, I never have a good word you to want say Jordan? about Nancy. Yes, I do. You do? I do want Jordan. Let me, I'm going to just get Nick. Nick, do you want Jordan or do you want Scalise? I'm fine with either one. Scalise is sick. Uh, and I'm a little worried about the blood cancer. Wait, okay. We're going to have to pause here. Uh... I think I'd be, I'd be for Jordan. I'd be for Jordan as well, because I'm concerned about Steve Scalise. He should be taking care of himself, for his family, and and let someone else run the show. He doesn't have the energy to do the job. I'm Bruce Dumont, the chairman of the National Libertarian Party. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with our number two of Beyond the Beltway. And uh, if you are regular listeners, you know that last week we introduced you to the uh, co-founder of the No Labels political effort. And uh, tonight we're very pleased to introduce to you the chair of the National Libertarian Party, Angela McArdle. Ms. McArdle, thank you very much for joining us from Austin, Texas tonight. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. I I want to begin, but at, at the end of this hour, I want every uh, all the listeners to have a good understanding of what are the options that that are represented in the Libertarian Party if they want change in America, and uh, how likely is it, and uh, also to know about some of your key positions to see if they agree or disagree with them. And again, I'm joined by Bruno Barron, who joins me in studio along with Judith Sherwin. And uh, I want to begin first of all by talking about um, how will you determine who your candidates for president and vice president will be? Sure. We select our candidates for president and vice president at a national nominating convention, similar to Republicans and Democrats on Memorial Day weekend of 2024. It's a big uh, several day event. Candidates are selected at state conventions across the country through voting, you know, probably very similar to other uh, parties, state Mm -hmm. nominating conventions. And we all come together and this year it'll be in or next year it'll be in D.C. And that's when we get to choose our candidate. And they're already out campaigning and trying to win our votes. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any in the list that are out campaigning now, is there any notable name that people around the country would, would recognize? I think the most prominent individual right now is Dr. Michael Rechtenwald. He was a professor at NYU until he was canceled by the left in uh, 2018, I believe. And he has since gone from a Marxist academic to a dyed in the wool, hardcore libertarian Mm -hmm. uh, associated with the Mises Institute. Um, He's probably got the highest profile. I want to also ask a question about what is likely to happen tomorrow. In Philadelphia, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has called a press conference. Uh, He is going to announce, according to the published reports, that he's leaving the Democratic Party. He is considering an independent run for president. Uh, There's been reports that he has had conversations with the Libertarian Party. Is Robert Kennedy still a viable possibility to be a candidate of the Libertarian Party? He is. 
I mean, I believe he's going to announce independent tomorrow, but we've had several really productive conversations and there is an appetite with some of the members of the party for him to join us. So I don't anticipate we're going to see a big announcement that he jumps tomorrow to the Libertarian Party, but but we'll see. And and the door is still open. Would you acknowledge that if Robert Kennedy uh, were to say that or he would end up as your nominee uh, come next May? Would you say that was probably one of the biggest political de- developments in the history of the party and that you have a nationally recognized name that everybody knows? I don't mean to, to, to speak ill of, of uh, yeah. Dr. Uh, Rechtenwald, but, uh, but uh, that's a, that would be a big get for you. Oh, absolutely. It would be. I think probably much bigger than Gary Johnson and Bill Weld in right. 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they were ex-governors, but Kennedy comes from a political dynasty family. Mm-hmm. And and he was, you know, he's been all over the news for the last several years right. because he was so opposed to, to vaccine mandates and, and so in favor of medical freedom. So, if, if yeah, you, he, if you that would be interesting. At, if you looked at his issues that he is most notable for, including what you've just referenced, and looking at the platform of the Libertarian Party, what are the issues that you think he would be most comfortable in running with or your party would be mm-hmm. most comfortable in giving their nod to him because uh, you guys might be on the same page? Sure. Medical freedom and free speech. Those are his two really good issues. He's very good on those. And, and we care about those a lot. It's been, you know, there's been some some skepticism and nervousness over his Second Amendment position and it sounds like he's certainly in favor of gun rights. I don't know if he's as hardcore about it as, as we are, but um, definitely freedom of speech. Are there other downsides that you think would be a hard sell to uh, those who are going to come to your convention with his position? Certainly. Yeah, some of his comments about environmentalism over the years and the way that he wants to use regulatory frameworks, you know, we're not in favor of that. We're very very much in favor of entrepreneurialism and innovation and, and business. And we don't want to see aggressive regulatory um, control over, over industries, even if it's for the sake of, you know, climate change or making the earth better. Like we just want to see human flourishing and innovation. He's also talked about the intelligence community and uh, what they do and yep. what they shouldn't have done. Uh, alleging that uh, they assassinated his uncle, uh, the president of the United States, and that they also were behind the assassination of his father. Uh, Those are both very, very controversial positions that major parties would shy away from in in, in a heartbeat. Uh, The exploration of those issues and those allegations, again, would that be something that members of the Libertarian Party you think would be cheering or would they hold their nose and say, by God, we got to really, you know, we got we got to play this issue down? Oh, I think most Libertarians would be jumping all over that and, and that most of us agree that the CIA had some role in the death of his his uncle and his father. And, you know, we're we're hosting a rally actually on President's Day weekend in D.C. called Defeat the Deep State. And you know, if all goes well, he, he'll be joining us there. We've invited him at least. Um, we want to see we want to see agencies like those exposed, just raked over the coals. And, uh, you know, however he runs, I wish him the best of luck on doing that because we, we're definitely with him on that. How has the, the strength of the Libertarian Party changed 
uh, in the last uh, 15 years. You've only been around since 1971, but if you look at the last 15 mm-hmm. years, again, you mentioned Gary Johnson, you mentioned Governor Weld of, of Massachusetts. These were relative, relatively known, you know, brand names in politics. Uh, how did they do? And in, in, are, are your numbers at the national presidential level, are they going up or are they going down? Governor Gary Johnson and Bill Weld got the highest number that's numbers that we'd seen so far with uh, over 3%, but we definitely took a dip in 2020 with Joe Jorgensen. And a lot of people attribute that to her refusal to be really brash and outspoken on some of the things that were happening that year, mm-hmm. including all the BLM rioting, the, the lockdowns. We hadn't had vaccine mandates yet at that time, I don't believe. Um, It was also a really challenging year to go out and campaign like normal. You had a lot of people afraid, locked in their homes, voluntarily and some involuntarily. It was difficult to get large arenas to hold events at. There were mask mandates, which just made it, you know, Mm -hmm. less less engaging. So I tend to think that it's a little bit of both. I think it's the candidate, you know, no offense and and also um, just the political climate, especially with all the hostility that year. Now, you will also be looking for candidates uh, to run for governor and senator and, and all kinds of issues up and down the oh, yeah. ballot. So you're you're a very, it isn't just the, the, the top of the ticket. And when we come back, I want to talk more about your efforts to do that. We'll also hear from our guests in studio. They've been taking copious notes. They've got some questions for you as well. And we'll go through some of the other other major platform issues of the Libertarian Party. We're talking to the national chair of the Libertarian Party, Angela McArdle, tonight. Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Beltway. We continue on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, Judith Sherwin, who's our card-carrying Republican at the table tonight, she's got a question for you, uh, Ms. McArdle. Hi, uh, Ms. McArdle. Um, pleasure to uh, be on with you. And I, I have some questions. Uh, I've been doing a little homework on the Libertarian Party. What? How do you differentiate yourself from, say, from the positions of Donald Trump, who is anti-regulatory, who wants to cut regulations, who cut taxes, um, it's very strong on the Second Amendment. How, how does the Libertarian Party differentiate itself, say, from him, and then from, you know, I suppose, the establishment Republican Party? Certainly, we as Libertarians are very opposed to the drug war. Uh, we do not want to go to war with Mexico or uh, Mexican cartels. I, in fact, I think what's going on overseas right now with uh, the Palestinians and Israel is a, is a lesson on what not to do with a, with a country on your borders. We do not want to have any conflict like that with Mexico or, or violent criminals coming from a country that borders us. Um, we also believe very much in peaceful foreign policy on that note. You know, we don't like that the United States has over 750 military bases overseas in, in at least 80 countries. We would like to see the United States military reserved just for national defense. You don't see those those bases overseas as part of our national defense? 
I see them as the national defense of other countries that have essentially outsourced defense to us. But no, I don't actually believe that they make us safer. And uh, one of the key issues in the country is is the crime in America's major areas. And I want you to elaborate a little bit more about about the role of the United States in the proximity to Mexico. If indeed Mexico is trafficking in in drugs mm-hmm. that hurt the United States, I'm talking about fentanyl now, not just recreational yeah. drugs that uh, you know we happen to be their largest market. But uh, is there not uh, some role for for the federal government uh, to try to stop that relationship with Mexico, the illicit relationship with Mexico and their cartels? I I think that we do have a a serious southern border crisis and you'll get different opinions from from different libertarians and the parties on that. You know, we're not a monolith of opinion on the border. Mm -hmm. I I do believe that we should at least be doing some some type of border checks right now. And I know we're not because one of my friends was able to just drive over the border last weekend with no problem at all. It just waved her on by, presumably because she's a white lady. Um, I also think that the war on drugs has failed. And we need to allow businesses and and institutions to be a little bit more open and forthright about fentanyl testing for a lot of the black market drugs that are on the streets. And I know it's unsavory and gross, but, you know, if drugs became legalized overnight, I doubt any of us on this panel are going to go out and consume drugs. What we really need is to remove the the stigma and humiliation and revolving door prison the, the revolving door to prisons because of the drug war, mm-hmm. that that sort of thing will allow people to get jobs, you know, find some more meaning and, and hope in their lives, uh, allow them to reconnect with families, not break up the family unit, especially in urban communities, and, you know, try to get themselves back together. And you, but and, you, you think that, you think at this moment, you're, if you're, you're measuring the, uh, the temperature of the American political uh, landscape, mm-hmm. you're saying that you think that would be a popular position as opposed to, I think, a position that's growing in America, and Mm -hmm. that is more police, more enforcement, and then some people suggesting even it's time to go back to rebuilding and creating more prisons. We've got the highest prison population in the world. I know that. We have have tons of police officers. They They don't focus on property crime, which is really unfortunate. We need to pull them off of the drug war, focus on property crime, and approach the drug war in a different way. Okay. It's, it's not working. Bruno Barron has a question for you. Well, so, um, and I, I'm sorry, you, what was your first name again? Angela. Angela. Angela, I just wanted to uh, call you by your first name. So it's interesting listening to this. So the, the, the drug war issue is one that, like, you could make a case the libertarians are kind of winning that, right? Um, pot's legal everywhere, that no one's really going, you know, and maybe people are still going to jail for some things, but for the most part, no one really cares about the user, even though the user is driving so many of the economic issues with cartels and everything. But that that's not really my, my issue. What is kind of interesting is that there are issues that libertarians ha- can win at, and and then, but the, here's the real problem. You know, 270 votes to win in the Electoral College with two behemoth parties who have already have both their thumbs and feet and hands on the scale to make sure that you can't get the votes that you need, even if you had a good candidate. So, you know, a couple of questions I have is, have you ever thought, has the discussion ever been out there 
of saying, you know, we're not going to – we're going to be the Libertarian Party. We're going to try and grow the party. But one of the ways we're going to grow it is we're going to endorse or we're going to say, here's the person in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party who's closest to our position. And, you know, might, might you endorse or, or one day not put forth a candidate or maybe put forth a, a few candidates to, to win in some Senate or House district, you know, some st- state Senate. And, you know, because – the issue is, I have a, like, a warm spot in my heart for a lot of your issues, um, but what I what I can't see, and and I, I just I, I say this all the time to everybody who talks about third parties and independent candidacies, all of which I support because they drain away people from the two parties. But how do you ever get your ideas to where they can do what they've done with the drug war and actually win the issues independent of ever winning the presidency, which you're not going to do. So the presidency is really just a, a signaling mechanism for down ticket candidates. Uh, in my opinion, it's at this point in time, it's it's intended to help grow a grassroots movement where we can win at is the local level. And we've done a really big push uh, this year, essentially in the party's infrastructure and training and, and resources to empower local candidates to go out. We want to identify local races that are unopposed, places where we can win and snatch them up and do it um, in a very fiscally, you know, responsible way and, and be innovative in that in that respect. Uh, it's a constant discussion and debate as to whether or not we should ever endorse anyone in another party. My preference is that we rate people that we don't endorse them. Uh, otherwise, what's the point of having a, it's a good idea? Party? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to actually winning the presidency, some people actually think that if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. jumped in, and if Donald Trump ended up ineligible for whatever reason and and the democrats you know continued on their suicide mission to put joe biden back in office again that he could actually win it i don't know i it's nothing you know i have full faith in him that he would do everything that he could to to run a knockout race i don't know that the powers that be would let us just do that who knows what do would you, happen in my opinion mm-hmm. it would be some in the wild. in the history of the party uh, angela have you ever won a governorship a U.S. Senate or U.S. representative uh, race? I mean, one, you actually uh, elected the person that went to serve the, the government. U.S. representative, I believe so, but not Senate, not governorship, no. We've had a, we've had a number of House uh, state-level representatives who've been elected as well. Uh, that was much earlier. I believe that was in the 80s when the party was like really, um, really fired up and new and exciting. Has there ever been a move most- to decide that instead of being a national party, uh, that you would focus your attention on one or two states where your, uh, you know, where, where your polling suggests that your mm-hmm. positions would be very popular, I think probably somewhere out west somewhere, and you'd focus yep. your attention and all the fundraising and everything else would be to, your goal would be to elect the, the governor of Wyoming or a senator from Montana. Yeah, absolutely. We had something called the Frontier Project where we got a state assemblyman elected in Wyoming and we'd hoped to expand and, and continue to grow that and they outdistricted him first chance they got um, <laughs> because he was absolutely a threat to them. Uh, and line. We're open to revisiting <laughs> it. Yeah, we're reopening to we're re, we're open to revisiting that, but it's not a project we're pursuing in the moment. Judith Sherwin has another comment. Yeah, so I have another question for you. It kind of is an offshoot of what what Bruno brought up. 
Have you ever, and, and also what Bruce brought up, have you ever, you know, given our electoral system, uh, have you ever thought about focusing your attention, as Bruce said, in the presidential race, in places where you think you have some sympathetic voters and trying to pick up electoral votes to deny the main parties the 270 in the Electoral College and then get in there and fight it out. It seems to me if you did that, you would have, first of all, the ability where mm-hmm. instead of being this sort of fringe kind of operation, which a lot of people believe your party is, you would flip into the national conversation very quickly because the, the question would be, who's going to try to pick up those electoral votes that right. you have? And and could you even sway you know, some of the others so that your guy or girl would come out on top. So I, I think, you know, has anybody ever thought about that strategy? Certainly. We have a candidate running for president right now named Lars Mapstead, who's very focused on trying to win one electoral college vote. Um, we'll see how he does. You know, that's a, it's a really interesting strategy. Where's he from? He certainly... New Hampshire? Uh, I believe he's from California. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he's not from New Hampshire. I, I believe he's from California. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might target New Hampshire. We'll see. There, that's where the Free State Project lives. Lots of libertarians live up there. I mean, can you can you uh, like pull off one? I don't know if you can pull one electoral it's vote possible. out of California, but but seriously, if you could win a couple of states, maybe one big one and a couple of little ones, mm-hmm. you'd have a place so. in the electoral college. When we come back, uh, I want to continue our conversation with uh, Angela McArdle. She is the national chair of the Libertarian Party. 1-800-723-8289 is the phone number, should you have a question to for her. And uh, when we move forward, I want to find about the future of the party demographically. Is it an older party or is it a younger party? Back shortly. Dumont back in studio with me this evening is Judith Sherwin. She's a conservative Republican attorney, and Bruno Barron joins us. He is a uh, uh, he, he sometimes describes himself as a libertarian, but you're not a member of the Libertarian Party, but you're no, a I'm, libertarian conservative. Uh, yeah, liberta- well, libertarian leaning. I, I used to be much more libertarian, and as I've mentioned before on the air here, I've become much more socially conservative um, on on many issues, mm-hmm. uh, just because they the, the libertarians don't. They, you know, You've so got to give us a new way because I think we still identify you as a libertarian on the screen. <laughs> so we better. You can describe that. me as the farthest right guy you'll ever like. <laughs> you know, oh, that, we are I, friendly. I <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Angela, and Angela McArdle. We to- we are friendly. <laughs> we are friendly to social conservatives, so long as they're not interested in using the the government to impose their views. One of the things that has been really a significant kind of change recently in the party culturally is that we just started being friendlier, family friendlier, honestly, friendlier to families, um, you know, more mm-hmm. excited about having homeschoolers and social conservatives and, mm-hmm. and Christians and, you know, other people of faith in the, in the movement. That indicates to me that your party may be uh, younger than older. And, and, and my perception of, uh, what a libertarian is insofar as sort of the demographics would be someone in their mid-30s, married or not married, 
that probably still likes, you know, James Taylor music. Uh, where am I wrong? <laughs> I, I mean, uh, you, you, I don't know about all together, but we have people act active in the party who were active on the Goldwater campaign. We do have seniors in the party. Okay, uh, we also have good. high schoolers who are active in the party, you know, and everything in between. So mm. we're pretty, we're a pretty good mix. You are on the ballot in all 50 states. Is that correct? Yes, for the last two election cycles. What do you have to do to keep that ballot positioning? Oh, it is a lot of work. It's going to be more work this year than it was in 2016 because of the low turnout at the at the polls mm -hmm. for uh, for our last candidate, uh, especially in New York. It's really challenging, and and because some of the states also like New York like to make things more difficult for us. So we have to we have to signature gather, we have to do some petitioning, we're doing some lobbying in a few states. Alabama's a state where we've got to hit the ground with petitions soon. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we're we just starting the petitioning drive period, right? Doesn't it start this week? Didn't I read that just mm -hmm. today? Arkansas has been collecting for quite a while. Okay. Uh, North Dakota has been collecting for a while. I believe Ohio is, is working on it right now. Mm-hmm. So some states have more time than others. Let, let's talk about uh, criminal justice reform. You mentioned uh, your positions on, on drugs and, and you mm -hmm. don't feel there needs to be any military incursion or too much law enforcement incursion into Mexico to stop the fentanyl traffic. But again, uh, Certainly. Uh, what are the other criminal justice related positions that you have? So much. So I actually think that police and law enforcement need to be more focused on uh, property crime. I believe, especially in big blue cities, that the police, when they just stand down and let rioters go nuts, that that's wrong. It sends the wrong message. It's it's an absolutely terrible incentive, especially in it, like L.A., where they do smash and grabs and, you know, these stores just get raided. That's awful. So I do think that law enforcement needs to step up there. That we also need to have a culture that empowers shop owners and good Samaritans to go ahead and defend their businesses. The, the whole Kyle Rittenhouse trial, like that, shouldn't be a thing. Mm -hmm. That shouldn't. It, it should be okay to defend your business and to, to defend yourself from violent crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also do think that we need to end no-knock raids, and, and thankfully, you know, some states have already ended that. But that's that's dangerous practice. We shouldn't do that. Um, How about no cash else? bail, which is no the, cash the law bail of the land really, in Illinois? It is. Uh, you know, I think that it's a really mixed bag. I, I think that it really puts people at a at a huge disadvantage when they don't have the money to make bail. I think it also gets abused. I think what we need there is like really good discretion and and sound judgment. Mm -hmm. Bruno's got another question. Yeah, uh, Angela. So one of the ideas that I'm, I'm always trying to come up with ideas for you guys because I'd like for you to succeed in some way. I'm 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 mostly a Republican, but I do like things that shake things up. Um, I I want Robert F. Kennedy to run this year as something. I want uh, I want. Um, Oh, who's the black professor whose name I'm forgetting? Cornell right? West. Cornell West. Cornel I want West. I want Cornell West out there. I I, I would write who's him leaving the Green Party. I would he write running as an independent. I would write him checks, but but for you guys, like for example, if you're talking about this criminal justice issue, um, you know, no Republican is going to win in any district where one of these Soros backed DAs are going to run, but a Libertarian might. Right. Um, 
Yeah, and so there's some pay dirt there potentially um, for a good candidate, maybe someone who used to be a Republican or someone who hasn't been labeled as one yet but is you know pretty good on the issues to literally go like get some funding from some you know some conservative donors and some Republican donors yep. to take back these districts where these pro crime pro criminal uh, anti, you know, I mean, they're, they're, the the Democratic Party is becoming overtly Marxist, particularly in these areas, yep. and people don't want it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Angela, correct. Even even the people on the left, they don't like it. Uh, they've discovered that you know all the books that they read in college, everything their college professor foisted upon them, it's uh, it's not it's very uncomfortable in the real world. Uh, the the proletariat revolution, uh, you don't want that at your door. You don't want your door smashed. You don't want your car lit on fire. It's quite miserable. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd love we would we would love to work with conservatives on trying to do criminal justice reform in these big cities in a way that includes uh, um, protection of of life and liberty. And I, I think that property is part of that because that's how you make your live your livelihood. That's how you yeah, but I your think children. Also, you know, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, local municipalities, I would think even, even running, uh, you know, candidates for mayor, because yep. it, the problem is that in many big cities, um, the Republican label is absolutely death in, in major yep, cities. It is. Not necessarily in counties, but certainly in major cities. And you know, if there was a libertarian perspective, you wouldn't have the baggage of uh, of having. Although you might have the baggage of defending some of your positions, it wouldn't be necessarily a knee jerk reaction based on just uh, hatred of the Republican Party and what it stands for. Right, that's very true, and it was very close in L.A. I mean, closer than everybody anticipated when mm-hmm. Rick Caruso ran for mayor. Mayor, mm-hmm. it really showed. You know, a lot of the people in Hollywood and you know West L.A. They're just so sick of it. Uh, I do think they'd be open to a libertarian, but you know, I have to say that the same thing that I tell all of my candidates is, it's not a good idea to just jump in a race when you're unknown you have to build yourself up right you have to stack political capital you need to attend committee meetings try to get on a subcommittee you know build a following within the city and community before you run for office um you know no one really cares if you walk in with a book of atlas shrugged or you know rothbard's man economy (laughs) and state they're not interested in that they're like how are you going to fix my trash cleanup right right yeah. Well, I, I think another another piece of advice I would give you from my own career, uh, if you run for office and you're unsuccessful, run again, because uh, you can learn a lot from that first visit. Now, again, sometimes your your ego is bruised and you don't want to try it again. But I think that's it helps build name recognition. And the, the more times that you run, the, the more likely it is that uh, you might get elected someday. I think the late William Proxmire of Wisconsin, I think he ran for office, I think, seven or eight times before he ultimately was mm-hmm. elected. And then mm-hmm. he was reelected, uh, you know, over, over and over again. How does someone become involved in the party if they're listening to the program this evening and they say they like this idea, I've got some time on my hands, I want to change things, but I'm not necessarily enamored with the Green Party or Cornell West or some of the uh, parties that are out there that are viewed as third parties, although in many cases uh, they're, they're the third, fourth, or sixth party. What do they do? Certainly. So there are two ways. One, you can, whatever state you live in, you want to Google that state Libertarian Party, find them and get involved at the state and local level. 
Uh, the other way is to go to lp.org, scroll to the bottom of the website and find contact us and shoot us a message. You can join, you can sign up there. It's just $25 a year to be a member and we can get you connected. We have a lot of really cool things uh, coming up on the horizon, a lot of really cool nationwide political activism that we're looking for more volunteers and you know supporters. What, is the, what has been done to uh, initiate conversations with the national news media to give not only your convention more coverage, but uh, your candidates for president and vice president more coverage once they're uh, nominated uh, or picked by the convention? Well, I engage with the on the national level all the time since I basically act as a spokesperson for the national party. I, I write op-eds for Newsweek a lot. Uh, candidates generally handle their own media until they actually receive our nomination. Um, I, yeah, I, I go to bat with, with mainstream uh, corporate media fairly often. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to the various indictments of Donald Trump? Is there a party position on that? There's not an official party position on it. I, I guess we could vote on it if we wanted to, you know, and make a resolution, although people might be annoyed or think it was virtue signaling. But generally, we think that it's political terrorism by Democrats, that they, they have justice system against him. And it's especially frightening because some of the people he put into their positions, those are the people who have also come after him. So we really do think that a lot of the institutions of Washington, D.C. are completely captured. And it should be a wake up call to everyone else who's who's not, you know, part of the deep state apparatus. That, that is that is absolutely dangerous. And we've got mm -hmm. to can to dismantle it. Our phone number is 1-800-723-8289. We've got callers coming in. We will hear from them when we continue with uh, Angela McArdle. She is the national chair of the Libertarian Party. I'm Bruce Dumont. Don't go away. on the ballot in 50 states is no easy task, and I'm sure that uh, it's, it's not a cheap task as, as well. So uh, tell us a little bit more about your, uh, your fundraising plans. Where do, you, where do you get most of your money from, uh, Angela? We get most of our money from grassroots uh, donors and members across the country. We do have several major donors, but by and large, the bulk of our budget is carried by people who donate at the $25 to $1,000 level. Okay. And uh, Judith Sherwin has got a question. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, foreign policy positions, because, I mean, you indicated that, that the party is not pleased with having troops overseas and, I suppose, foreign entanglements. I mean, given what happened yesterday in in uh, Israel, I mean, what, has the Libertarian Party got any position or I know it's it's kind of quick to to ask you. It's only twenty four hours later, but the question is, you know, what what would be your position on a situation like that? You you've got it's not another country invading a country, but you've had this situation. What what would you say? 
Well, we do have a position on it. And our position is that, you know, it's awful what happened, but the United States needs to stay out of it. We've given Israel, what, $150 billion in aid to, to clarify the, 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 I believe the VA only gets like $383 billion a year from the United States Veterans Affairs. Mm-hmm. $150 billion is a lot. Uh, we think that foreign aid is money that would be better spent at home, preferably in the pockets of taxpayers. But if not, at least going towards caring for our veterans, you know, taking care of infrastructure. There's over a trillion dollars in student loan debt in the United States. Um, all the money that we spend on foreign aid and dealing with foreign entanglements, I believe it should be brought back. What about what about student aid? Are you for are you for waiving student aid? I am not for waiving student aid. I believe that we need to get rid of all of the federal loans and programs that go from the government to government schools and private schools. I don't, can you imagine, there's there's no other place, there's no other way in the country that someone who's 17 or 18 years old gets to take out a massive loan for thousands of dollars. They only do it for colleges. It is a little predatory in my mind, and, and I try not to use words like predatory or exploitative because, you know, what does that mean? Everybody's free to make their own decisions. But these loans are pushed on students when they're in high school, you know, before they're the you know legal age, before their voting age. Um, I think it's wrong. I think we need to remove the federal entitlements that allow that to happen. I think we need to allow people to go ahead and declare bankruptcy and the cost of school needs to stabilize. And hopefully, you know, culturally will change so that people care more about real education and maybe trade school than they do about gender studies and basket weaving. Bruno. That's a really excellent exposition. I, I I think you're being far too nice, um, and, you, and I wouldn't worry about using that, those words. The American education system, and let's just go stick with higher ed for a moment. The higher ed American education system is essentially a money laundering scheme for a growing, obscene, corrupt, and evil class of administrators who have found a yeah. way to suck trillions of dollars of future earnings of American students into their pockets, leaving them in debt. It, it's it's one of the most evil schemes on the planet. And again, this would be a perfect, like, I'm, I'm trying to find a place for all of you good-hearted libertarian people to start making a case that, you know, maybe maybe your job is to start knifing the Democratic Party in the back um, because we don't seem to do that good a job of it from the front. But um, literally, uh, huge chunks of America have become a criminal enterprise, and this is one of them. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, as far as knifing the Democrats in the back goes, uh, well, that's just my I partisan wish. Yeah. Well, I did threaten to file for conservatorship over Joe Biden recently. So, you know, we do That's pull political good. stunts. We do, it would be pretty we good. do all kinds of wild things. I want to return for those that just tuned in. We're talking with Angela McArdle. She is the national chairperson of the Libertarian Party. She joins us tonight from Austin, Texas. But I want to return to questions that we had at the beginning of the program. And that is uh, tomorrow, Robert Kennedy is going to have a press conference. There have been discussions as to what he's going to do. He supposedly is going to run as an independent, but there has been flirtations with the Libertarian Party. So bring us up to date one more time, if you will, uh, about the relationship between you and Robert Kennedy and what he might do or say tomorrow. 
Sure. So we do have a good relationship. We've spoken several times and met in person. Right now, I, I'm not 100% sure what's going to happen. It seems like he's leaning towards running independent, but we're going to keep a good relationship. And if he decides to jump into the LP, uh, hopefully he brings all of his uh, supporters and enthusiasm with him. That would be a real game changer for us. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll all find out tomorrow. But running as an independent, he would have to do the legwork of getting on the ballot yep. in all 50 states. And uh, of the other parties that are out there, uh, the Green Party, uh, National Socialist Party, are there any other parties that are on the ballot in all 50 states? No, no. Green Party is a distant fourth place. Um, and, and I do have a working relationship with them. And we work together on ballot access sometimes, and that should tell you how difficult ballot access mm -hmm, is. The mm -hmm. two parties have to join together, join for forces to try to overcome it. Uh, I also work with a with a few independent candidates as well, especially in the state of New York. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a multi organization effort, and I wish him the best of luck if he runs independent. Yeah. It's going to take a lot of money and resources, yeah. and I, I got to tell you, tremendous amount of organizational skill. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I think of the skills uh, sets that he has and the challenge that he has ahead if he runs mm -hmm. it as independent. And I would say the same thing for Cornell West, who is leaving the Green Party. And so you've got two candidates out there who have strong positions uh, that some people would support. And again, uh, you're asking each of them basically to jump through hoops that the Libertarian Party has already done since uh, 1971. And uh, on that note, I want to thank uh, Angela McArdle for joining us. She's the national chair of the Libertarian Party. If you want to go to lp.org, right? That's the website? That's correct. LP, Libertarian Party, dot org. It's an org. They're not in this to make money. They're in this to change lives. Judith Sherwood has joined us this evening. Judith, thank you very much. Bruno Barron, thank you for joining us as well. We had guests earlier in the program. We thank them also. And we thank our good friend, longtime friend here, the ever-popular Fritz Goldman, for his assistance in the production of this program. I'm Bruce Dumont.